Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Remember that from the movie Poltergeist 2, even though the movie today is Poltergeist 1 by Steven Stilberg? Huh? Well, nothing's changed. This is I Was There Too. My name's Matt Gorley, and it's the podcast where I talk to people who were there in the great scenes of cinema history. I'm very excited to kick off this, we'll call it a second season, with the movie Poltergeist. And it doesn't stop there, because I think I'm going to do these first three episodes as a Spielberg extravaganza. Because the crossover between these three films, not only in theme and in style, but also in the making of these films, is worth noting. Spielberg was developing E.T. the Extraterrestrial around the same time as Poltergeist, and because of studio rules of some kind, he had to pick one or the other. So he chose the one that was closest to his heart, which was E.T., but he handed Poltergeist over to Toby Hooper and was a producer and writer on the film, one of the few films that he was a writer on, and was very involved in the making of it. Some say, controversially, that he actually directed it, while others say, no, 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 Toby Hooper directed it. How are we going to know the truth? Well, will my guest today address it, Martin Casella from Poltergeist? I think so, and I think very succinctly. But flashback, not long before that, Spielberg wrapped up Raiders of the Lost Ark, and his assistant at the time was my guest today as well, Martin Casella, who turned out to be a lovely gentleman and had great stories to tell about both films. And in an unprecedented event, I said, hey, the unprecedented event wasn't me saying, hey, it was me saying this. We're done talking about Poltergeist. Stick around. Let's talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I hadn't even planned and uh, turned it into an entire second episode, which will follow two weeks from today. But flashback even more because when Spielberg was working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Harrison's Ford's <laughs> Harrison's Ford, Attorney's General, Harrison's one through four, you would honestly think I've been drinking when I do these, but I swear to God I'm not. And that's the most embarrassing part of it is I'm not drinking when I do this. This is the size of it. Anyway, Harrison's Ford's God damn it. <laughs> Harrison Ford's wife at the time, Melissa Matheson, came to visit him on the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg convinced Matheson to 
work on the script for E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which will be the third episode in this new season of I Was There Too. Do you see how it's all coming together like a Spielberg movie in the end? I do, and I'm the one saying it. Okay, it is good to be back, but clearly I have lost my facility for speech. God forbid I go back and edit this thing. What if this is the edited version? Imagine what the other one is like. Imagine also if I started this goddamn podcast and we just got underway. So let's hear from Martin Casella, who played Marty the Paranormal Researcher in Poltergeist. The film, Poltergeist, the year 1982. The role, Dr. Marty Casey. The actor, Martin Casella. Martin Casella, in the film Poltergeist, your paranormal researcher suffers a, a drumstick chicken riddled with maggots, uh, some kind of flank stank itchworming across the counter. Yes. You're thrown around and bitten by the poltergeist beast, and you literally rip your own face off. But none of the other paranormal researchers suffer anything like that. Why was this beast picking on you? The beast was picking on me because I didn't believe it existed. And if you watch the movie very closely, I'm the one who keeps saying, I don't believe it. There's, right. It's a fake. Nothing's going on here. They're trying to fool us. You're the skeptic. I am the skeptic. Richard Lawson, on the other hand, who was one of my partners in crime in the movie along with Beatrice Strait, Richard is completely on board. He loves the idea that we're in this house. And as a matter of fact, on set – well, in the film, there's a cutaway to a drawing that he's doing. The staircase. The staircase and the, fa- yeah. and the face yeah. coming down the staircase. Well, Richard did that. Richard did that. Oh, my God. Not in character. He was just sort of sitting around one day drawing pictures and things. And I don't remember if it was Toby Hooper or Steven Spielberg who saw it and th- said, oh, that would be terrific. Let's use that in the movie. So that was one more example of him really being there. And Beatrice Strait, of course, that's her job. She does believe in these things, and I don't. So it just got me in every which way but loose, including a scene that we shot. I don't know. You said you did a little research. But I did. This is the upstairs room scene? This is the but upstairs. Please tell this story. The upstairs room scene was – a great deal of fun because we did that second unit. There's obviously the question you may or may ask, ask later about the directorial. And my answer always says Toby, Toby always directed my scenes. Stephen was always there because he was the producer and he shares co-screenwriting credit on the film. For the listeners, there's been some controversy as to whether Spielberg or Toby Hooper directed this because he was contractually obligated to do E.T. but wanted to do this but then had to give it over to Toby Hooper, correct? That's basically correct, and yes. So he was present on the set but you're sort of saying that Toby Hooper – he handled the reins. Yeah. Okay. He, as far as I was concerned, I was there for five weeks of whatever the length of the shoot was. And uh, and then I came back and had to do reshoots later, and which were overseen by actually Frank Marshall. Oh, So wow. who was one of the producers of Poltergeist and later directed uh, that movie about the spiders, Arachnophobia. <laughs> yes. So then we'll consider the Spielberg-Hooper thing settled for today's it, purposes because I think everybody talks about that. Absolutely. Right. That said, uh, when we did second unit work, Stephen – 
did that part. Oh, and okay. my friends always used to yell at me. I'm sorry. I worked for him for three years, and then I was in the movie and all of that. So I normally am very careful, and I always say Mr. Spielberg. But On this podcast, I encourage you to, to drop names. As and, much as you yeah. want. That's what this is all about. This okay. is a shame-free zone. Shame-free. Oh, okay. Then I, okay, I'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> okay. well, we can talk about that later. Uh, Steven was the one who shot that sequence because it was, it was technically an insert, uh-huh. like on Raiders when I was a PA in Raiders and things, and Steven's assistant. Uh, Frank Marshall shot some of that. I mean, it's that's how movies work for sure. anybody who knows how movies work. So there was a sequence originally in the film that we shot that was alternately painful and a great deal of fun. They told me that I was going to walk down a long hallway and I was going to approach the door of the children's bedroom, which we had done earlier in the film when the, we opened the door and all the things are flying around yeah. the room. And that was all green screen or blue screen, whatever we did back then. And uh, so I was all by myself, and they had rigged me into uh, a harness, which was extremely uncomfortable. Um, Anybody who ever plays Peter Pan or those kids (laughs) in Peter Pan, and I don't know what – I mean, obviously, uh, stunt people are used to those. It was really uncomfortable, especially for guys. And so they had Yeah, how is Kathy Rigby still even mobile at this point? I don't know. Anybody who played – yeah. So I'm in this very uncomfortable rig and um, I made a Peter Pan joke, which of course Stephen was the only one who got because he's – that kind of guy. He got it. And because in the Disneyland ride, the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland, when the ride starts, the Peter Pan boy says, come on, everybody, here we go. That's and if right. you grew up in LA, like I did, you knew that. I ride. did as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There you go. So I said that when they hoisted me up in the air the first time to sort of practice. And Stephen, of course, got it. And he laughed because he's such a big kid. And uh, what they did was they rigged my shirt on the inside. Uh, if this is a shame-free zone, is it also <laughs> – I'm trying to figure out what words I can use and you can can't. Use it. Does it matter? Oh, anything okay. you want. Yeah. Okay. So they basically rigged my undershirt with all sorts of what in a violent movie would be called squibs back then. Mine yeah, were filled familiar. with Lux liquid detergent or some kind of thing that looked like Lux liquid detergent. So what the gag was going to be was they I would turn the door. They had this great doorknob that just kept turning and turning and turning. Oh, wow. And they had done that to j- sort of jack up the suspense. And I kept turning and finally there was a click. And then I slowly opened the door and apparently some ILM special effect was going to swoop through the door and pick me up. And when it did that, I would go about 10 feet in the air on this flying wire and it would sort of spin me around. And then when Steven would yell, go, that's when I had to scream and crunch myself over into like a little fetal position, screaming at the top of my lungs because that's when the ghost bit me. And we rehearsed all of that. We didn't rehearse the squibs because there were only three white shirts. Those poor white – These are like explosive squibs? They were like went – Oh, I'm so jealous. But with yeah, but with de- Lux detergent blood, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. like dishwashing soap. Yes. <laughs> so and it was all done so that they would blow in the shape of a ghost mouth, whatever that was. <laughs> that was the answer they told me. So by this point, you know, I had spent an entire day encased in plastic for my scene later on because that was a dummy that was built of me from basically my shoulders up for the for the thing where my face got pulled oh, yeah, off. Okay. I had to chew on chicken legs. I had to do this. I had to rip my face off. Um, 
And so we're finally, we're shooting this thing in the hallway. And I, I thought, well, this could kind of be fun. And then I was like, this is not going to be fun. And we could only do it three times because they only had three shirts. And it was very carefully rehearsed. And so the first time they gave me the thing and I got pulled up in the air and Stephen went, now. And they blew the squibs. And basically my shirt looked like it has ghost semen all over it. <laughs> it was – it literally was just like – and everybody started giggling. And, and, it, and, 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 and I was – I started laughing because it was so funny. It was like – I can't even describe – it was like a ghost porn shot. It was the money shot the money in a ghost shot, porn yeah. film. And I looked down and I just started laughing. And oh. they lowered me down and they switched my shirt out and they were like, okay. Okay, maybe there's something else we should so use. So they only did the one time. Well, they did it a couple more times, yeah. and and then they got it so that they, he said, "Don't worry, we'll with the special effects and the ILM guys, they'll like make it something sparkly or I don't know whatever yeah. ghost saliva looks like." So it was very very <laughs> painful. That's all I remember. And then they lowered me back down, and Stephen was like, "Good guy." By that point, I knew Stephen yeah. for three years, and we were laughing. And he said, "Great, great, great," and and you're all done. Terrific. And um, later on, when they were doing uh, the post-production on the movie, I can't remember who called. It was Stephen or Kathleen Kennedy or Frank or somebody and said, we're just giving you a heads up. You're in the movie. Don't worry. There's no way to cut you out. And friends of mine who had no idea, they were like, oh, what, what? will we see you in the movie? Do you have a line? I'm like – well, I'm in the movie for about 45 minutes yeah, and all sorts of – Because this is your first role? That was my first yeah, role. Okay. Yeah. And um, I, I said, yeah, you'll see me. Don't worry because we'd already done the looping by then. Uh-huh. That's when they told me it was, at the looping, it was at the looping session. And the looping session was funny because I'd always seen those in films. My idea of a looping session was – I don't know. You're probably a movie buff obviously. There's a movie called Inside Daisy Clover where Natalie Wood plays a young film star who has a nervous breakdown on a looping set when she has to <laughs> keep looping. Your, and I was I like – and that's where, where I felt like I was going to end <laughs> up. And I got to see all parts of parts of the movie. And back then, now they do looping over the phone. Yeah, it's it's crazy. They like do beep, 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 and you could do it from New York on a movie. Back then, I had to go into a gigantic looping studio, and you would see the movie projected on a gigantic screen. And all the – it was basically whatever they were showing us was in black and white. So oh, it made wow. it even spookier. Yeah. So as soon as I saw the sequence where I they had cut together me pulling my face off um, – I, j- I started laughing again and, and they're like, what's so funny? And I said, everybody's going to remember this because yeah. you'd never seen – you'd seen things like that in maybe My Bloody Valentine or Halloween or things like yeah, that. But, but never – certainly on a big budget Not on a big like budget this, blockbuster. Yeah. That was basically supposed to be a family film. Right. And so uh, they told me that. That's when it was. I remember now. They, they told me that day. They said what happened is that – Joe Beth Williams' acting was so amazing in that scene that was happening simultaneously to what I was going downstairs, through. Downstairs. Downstairs. Yeah. It's when she says, oh, my God, she went through me. I felt her soul. Stephen said, we couldn't find a way to cut away to you yeah. because it would have ruined that really beautiful moment. That makes sense. And I was like, okay. And so they, they gave me a, a couple stills. They, they, I think they wouldn't. Back then, it was a little harder to get film clips and things like that. Yeah. Now you can do anything. But does uh, that footage ever been released? I have never heard it being released. the The 
other cast members that I talked to, that I the couple that I'm still friends with, Joe Beth and um, Oliver Robbins, who played Robbie, who I actually did an autograph signing convention with a couple years ago, and I hadn't seen him since he was ten years <laughs> oh old. My God. This forty five year old guy walks yeah. in, a, and I'm like, wait, you're not Robbie at all. And so, <laughs> where are those teeth? Who are they? Yeah, exactly. So he and that was the other joke when that we shot when I ran downstairs. I spent hours getting a giant bruise, teeth marks on my side. And um, all I can say was I, I was glad I was a swimmer back then because I was like, <laughs> now they'd have a little trouble. I was like, yeah, you don't want to shoot that. But uh, <laughs> and then it was like, yeah, I can – sure, I can pull my shirt up. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. <laughs> and Rob uh, – Ollie had the um, – he had a very funny moment where they tried it's there now they do it with all comedies where they just let you improv yeah and say any kind of line you want and then they use the one that's the funniest well that one was that he kind of looked at it and said i think it's still in the film he looks at it and he says jaws yeah. like that and everybody yeah. thought that was because they always do that i mean in all of steven's movies in is it an et there's whole shelves of star wars toys oh and, and i was that age when these films came out and i would covet that stuff in fact i i feel like some of the scariest parts of this film were the destruction of perfectly good Kenner Star Wars toys. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yes. So, but that was that was the scene that didn't end up in the film, and I, I, I it's fun to have those kind of things. Everybody says, "Oh, you know, we we." I, I actually did another film. If you want, is it okay to talk about this? Just this is little, why we're here. Okay, great. Yeah. I did a film called Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh yeah, of which course. is wonderful. It's really funny, and I was uh, hired to be in the sketch that is uh, Ed Bagley Jr., where he thinks that he is um, the ghost of the Invisible Man. Uh. And it was all shot on a spectacular giant English pub set from the, I think, the 1920s or something. And Ed Bagley had to run around for an entire day in a posing pouch, completely naked. And the joke of that sketch in the film is that he says he's the son of the Invisible Man. So he takes all of his clothes off and runs around through this pub, and they all know that he's just the local crazy guy. And so they all pretend he's naked, and they're like going, where is he? Ooh, we can't see him. Why is my steak moving? And at the end of that, when the police haul him off back to the loony bin at the end, um, he walks out the door, and I walk in, and I walk up to the um, desk clerk and say, I need a room for tonight. There's a full moon. And he says – and. And what's, what's your name, sir? And I say, I'm the son of the wolf man. And then I start howling. Well, we shot all that. It took all day. We were in smoke and stuff and poor Ed Bagley running around in the posing pouch. And after a while, he didn't even put his robe back on. It got really funny after a while. He's like, yeah, fine. Everybody's seen what's going on here. So when I took about 30 friends to see that movie, we went up to the, I think, City Walk. Maybe that, I think it was there then uh, at Universal Studios. And we're all sitting there and I'm watching it. And the running joke of the movie, which is actually almost a takeoff of Poltergeist, which is Lou Jacoby, the famous comedian, falls into the television and his wife tries to find him by turning to all these different channels and seeing him. So in that one, he made his appearance um, at the end of our sequence. And just as I walked through the door and walked up to the desk clerk to do my line, they superimposed Lou Jacoby over me yelling, Miriam! 
Are you there? Miriam, I'm here. No. I'm here with the Invisible Man. <laughs> and all my friends, they, they all start booing in the movie theater. <laughs> they were like, wait a minute, we can't even see you. But a year later when they, you know, when I got the first residual, it's like, hey. Yeah. They, well, I, that's my, the important thing. Yeah, my yeah. name's still on the credit sheet. And, right. uh, so now back to your looping session. And we're going to take a break after this and then we'll come back and talk about the whole sequence with the face ripping okay. and everything. But was it awkward to go in and have to make the noises of you pulling your own face off just standing there? Oh, yeah. That must have been strange. It was very – well, I knew. I was still working for Steven back when the script was being written. As his assistant, As his assistant, yeah. And then I had stopped and then about three months later they called me and they said, oh, we heard you went back to acting and we want you to come in and read for this role. Great. On my way to the audition, I knew what the role was going to entail, so – I can't even. I'm going to tell you this. I practiced moaning and screaming in the car on the four. On the, yeah, on the 405 on the way to the audition at, at MGM, and um, so basically, yeah, you stand in a studio and there's a giant screen and you're having to go, uh, 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 and and you feel ridiculous yeah. doing it. And they're saying things like, "Could you make the uh a little louder?" or um, "Don't whine so much on the next one." And you're sitting there and you're trying – and I, as I said, I'd never done – I'd done lots of theater, but I'd never done a film before. And back then, I think they still have a version of it where you get those beeps to, to sort of know that it's coming. Oh, your yeah. scene is coming and it yeah. goes beep, beep, beep. And then the film clip starts and you have to match what the guy on the screen is saying to the noises that you're making. So, yeah, so yeah I, I sat there and screamed and yelled and moaned and, and – and, uh, cried and and made noises well so then we will go out to commercial on the audio from martin casella tearing his own face off knowing that you were standing in a looping studio making these noises okay Let's just say that the role was written for someone's another ethnicity, and they apparently auditioned all these people, and they couldn't find anybody they liked. So they, Mike Pickens' office called me, agreed it was my scene, except that Stephen said, this, in fact, we want you to come and audition, and this would be a really great way to thank you for three great years of working together, if you can do the role. And he knows that you've been acting, and at that, that time I was in a play here in Los Angeles. And, um, so what I went, was that play? The that, Lion in Winter? The Lion in Winter. This is what I wanted to talk to you yes. about. That's the first play I had ever done. Really? Who did you play in that? Well, in that production, I played John. That's who I played. Yes. Oh, my the, the little snivelly yeah, one. The, the but in high school, we had done it at my high school. 
We actually did the Lion in That's Winter. That's where I did it. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. crazy because now this, this, the, they've shut the play down. Oh, the, for schools, sure. the schools the schools wouldn't let yeah. they wouldn't let them do that play. I know. And uh, I and when I was in high school, I played Henry. Oh my God. Yeah. So wait, um, so you were from Henry to John? I went you from played the full spectrum. I did. I played Henry, and then I played John. John is this sniveling little spotty youngest <laughs> son, and I had chicken pox during the run, oh, and no. so I missed half the rehearsal. But the director says, "Don't like." Don't don't pick your scabs. Right. We need those for we the play. Those and for so the play. I did the play with chicken pox, and I looked like a zitty little brat. Yeah. yeah. It's a fun role because you get to be really spoiled. We had rented the costumes from Paramount, and they were the costumes from the film. So Henry had Peter O'Toole's robe. I had uh, – I can't remember the actor yeah, that yeah. played. But I had his little, uh, you know, cowl. Get little out of here. Yeah, it was crazy. That's fantastic. Yeah, I don't think our acting was up to their bar, <laughs> but the <laughs> costumes certainly were. Wow. So, um, so I went – I auditioned. I went to the Fenton Feinberg office. And uh, I basically had to scream and yell and yell and cry and go, ah, it's got to be. And there, I, had to I had to do the scene in the movie, which actually doesn't exist anymore, where we talked about uh, – it was when we the, truck, the little truck moved like an inch and a half. And there was very complicated uh, scientific dialogue about that, mm -hmm. which all got rewritten later on. Oh. That's another story. Really? If you want to hear that sure one, I can I tell you that too. Dish it out. Yeah. So, no, uh, we – when we shot that scene later, it's the scene where we're walking down a hallway and, and Richard Lawson says, oh, we, we observed a really amazing oh. incident where the truck moved a quarter of an inch yeah. in a yeah. five hours. Yeah. And Craig, Craig Nelson went, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he opens the door and it's every toy in the room is flying through the air and jumping up and down. Well, that scene originally had the most difficult to learn scientific gobbledygook you'd ever heard. And we shot it and shot it and shot it and shot it. And, and to Toby, with Toby going, we'll try it again. And Beatrice Strait was almost pulling her hair out. And Richard and I would get tongue-tied. And finally, Stephen finally had to come in and say, you know, there's a problem. And Beatrice Strait said, we can't say this dialogue. We literally can't say it. It just <laughs> makes no sense. And Stephen said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll send everybody home and... The scene will be rewritten tonight. Was this dialogue he had written as one of the screenwriters? No. You don't know? No, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And um, whatever it was, he came back the next day and said, you know, the, the, the 1980 equivalent of my bad, and, uh, <laughs> and said, we're, we're back on track now. And we all read the dialogue and went, oh, yeah. And we, I think we got it in like one take uh -huh. after that. So, because all the technical stuff had been taken out. So now it's just funny and punchy. Yeah. But my audition had all the technical oh, stuff. Oh, my God. And then I had to scream and yell and pretend to be pulling off my face. And um, you may have – if you did a little research, you, you may have found out that what happened was about – I didn't hear anything, and I just sort of assumed I didn't get it. And then about a month later, I got a phone call from Stephen's office saying they are having a – the first public screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I had worked on for a year um, all over the world in many capacities – and Stephen would like you to be there because you were a part of it from the very beginning. And I said, okay. And uh, it's at Paramount Studios. It's this night. Uh, the screening uh, The screening's at 7. And I went, oh, okay. Who's going to be there? And they said, oh, Kathy and Frank and Howard Kazanjian and maybe George Lucas and, and the Paramount execs. And I was like, great, okay. So I got there at 7 o'clock that night, and there was no one there in Paramount. Mm. I was in a big, giant, empty parking lot. And about 30 seconds later... Uh, a little black Porsche pulled up, and I recognized – I knew whose it was, and Stephen climbed out of the Porsche. And I said, I said, hi, did I make a mistake? And he said, no, there, there's a screening. It's, it's in a couple minutes. And I said, oh, okay. 
And, uh, and he made a joke, which he, when I had worked for him at one point, he would always toss me his car keys and go, go, bring, the, go bring the car around. <laughs> and actually, when he bought that car, I had to drive it home from whatever the place was out in Santa Monica, and I was terrified I'd never driven a Porsche before. <laughs> so we were standing there, and he goes, oh, so um, I hear you're an actor again. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a play in Pasadena. And he said, oh, and I hear you're going to be in a movie. And I said, I am? What are you talking about? And he goes, yeah, you're going to be – I heard today you got cast in some little movie called Poltergeist. Uh, and I said, what? What? And I started jumping up and down, and I think I hugged him. And I said, well, why are you here telling me? And he said, because I told them I wanted to tell uh, you. And I just thought – and I, we'd always used to say about Stephen – yeah, he, whatever. If you ever hear this, Stephen, you'll understand. He's, he, we'd always used to say – I would throw myself in front of a car for him. And then there were days where you go, I would push him in front of the car. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's how I got, that's the audition. And then that's how I found out I got the part. And then five minutes later, everybody else showed up and I got to see Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time in a private screening room at Paramount with all the producers and the executives. And it was unbelievable. You're living my dream life. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah. It's, it, you know, I just, I got really lucky. I only got the job. Will you, probably want to know about that but i got out of college and i went i didn't know what i was going to do i had a theater degree and uh all i wanted to do was be an actor and that didn't look like it was going to happen and my dad who had been in the business by that point for uh, 20 something years he said oh i'm starting this new movie in a couple weeks i need someone to run the transportation desk for me do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, what's the movie? And he said, 1941, <laughs> Steven Spielberg's new movie. And I, and I think I had just seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, wow. And, I, and I'm such a nerd. I learned the hand, the hand signals <laughs> when they play the music in the movie and Richard Dreyfuss does the hand signals. And I, a really good buddy of mine that I went to college with, I said, oh, my God, I'm gonna, I, I learned how to do it. And I'm going to do it the first day at work. <laughs> and he looked at me. He was a really good, smart guy. He goes, I wouldn't. Um, so flash forward to uh, your relationship with Steven Spielberg where he literally becomes your hands in the scene where you tear your face off Yes, take us through that what we did was because it was my first film uh, I'll be be very graceful and say it was hard and it was complicated I'm sure um, I've seen a picture of the behind the scenes it looks it was well first of all that house set was built well, how high is this ceiling? Maybe 15 feet or yeah. something? Yeah, we had to climb up 10 to 15 feet because the entire house was built on an elevated platform uh-huh. because of the um, swimming pool oh, and because the and bodies the are all coming through the floor, the chairs yeah. moving. They had to be able to do magnets underneath. And um, so uh, it was complicated. And I uh, – let's just say at one point Stephen said to me uh, – you work in the theater, right? You always have to find your light in the theater. Otherwise, the audience won't see you. It works the same way on a soundstage. And I was like, I'm trying to stay on my marks and find the light and chew. I don't like turkey chicken legs, so I'm trying to chew something I don't particularly like. And there was a special effect gag with the steak. And I had – they had two practical lights and then they had one coming from outside in this tiny little kitchen area. And they – wait. My memory of it is that we did 26 takes oh my God. of the of me just circling the kitchen, putting the pan down, turning the stove, opening the thing. Because if you open the light too much, it it got a flare on the camera. It gave it a kick. Well, so, you're, you're a complicated character too, because I have to say, when you just go, oh, I think I'm just going to go get something to eat, yeah. and then you go in and you're going to deep fry a steak, yeah, or something, <laughs> and I, I, chicken, I, I, yeah, your paleo it, diet, exactly, early you know, adopter, paleo here. guy, yeah. yeah. And also later on, I think I'm eating 
chips or yeah, Cheetos. Yeah, there's a lot of chips and, and crackers, crackers in this and household. Crackers and Cheetos. Yeah. Yeah. So, the dog so eats them as well. The dog does. And um, we – so I did all that and then – yeah, then I go in, the, then the thing turns into maggots, and that was really – that was a great special effect. It was all practical. So they had a guy sitting under the kitchen counter go. with a gigantic syringe, and Toby would yell, go, syringe, go, and the syringe would go and explode into the meat. Yeah. They actually had maggot handlers there, oh. I swear to you, maggot handlers because they were not allowed to kill any animal. <laughs> so there was the guy, and I had to be so careful, and every time when they would put them on the floor on the chicken leg, I had to be really careful – so when we did the effect, what happened was that they made me put rice in my mouth for about an hour, and then I, they made me drink a lot of water, and I had to hold the water in my right and the rice in my mouth because that would look like maggots. They had no CGI then; they couldn't use real maggots. Um, I think now of what poor Leonardo DiCaprio went through on The Revenant, where it just looked like the you know what else can you do to yeah, this poor guy? I've eaten maggots actually. Have you? I, I, was eating a tin of uh, macadamia nuts for about 15 minutes oh, until no. I looked down and they were crawling with maggots. Oh, well, and, so then yeah. you can relate. It's, I've been there. Yeah. Well, so I'm standing there and I couldn't talk and they're like, are you ready to do And so what we did was um, there were no practical effects on my face. They just sort of painted me up and then I was able to uh, sort of tear, you know, sort of scratch and this and that and then, then the light splashes and then – in the original cut, they cut right to the dummy. I had been in a, in a special effects house for half a day up to my shoulders in plaster with things in my nose, straws. They made a cast of me. They made a 10 – this is even impressive now. All these years later, it was a $10,000 wig of my <laughs> hair. So they made me look like – the dummy looked like me. And there, it was all controlled by cables and the eyes could move and the mouth could open. So what happened was they – in the original version, they cut right to the dummy and that was Stephen mm -hmm. because I said, I'm not doing this. Uh, I had trouble with the light cues and the, <laughs> hitting my marks. Uh, maybe since we can only do this once um, and because the dummy was there, it was spectacular. It was so beautiful and um, and all these guys were underneath with pulling pulling you know wires and – and I said, I said, Stephen, why don't you do this? I'll give you my ring. I'll give you my watch. You can put my shirt on and um, you can do it because – Here's a picture of it. Here. There it is. I'm oh, sure yeah. you're familiar with. So I'll yes. put that on the website. Yes, so. absolutely. And, and, and actually I think the people who told that <clears throat> was Blockbuster when Blockbuster existed, Blockbuster Video. They put it on the side of all the Poltergeist videos. Oh, you're kidding. The hands belong to Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. So, and I stood there and I watched and Steven was like a five-year-old <laughs> pulling the thing and the big clumps of flesh. And my he seems to be smiling. Yes, yeah. he is smiling. He had such a good time. And the effect was very cool because this is my memory of it. And as we all know, memories get a little shaded by, by time. They had uh, Jello. In the, in the cheeks of the dummy that had been frozen and they had two guys standing off camera with really hot, high-intensity um, hair dryers. This is similar to how they did the face melting in Raiders of the Lost Ark, yes. right? Yes, well, it was yeah. the same wax. people. Okay, yeah. yeah, it was the wax thing. Yeah. Yes, it looks very similar actually in Raiders when the guy – what is that one guy's face melts yeah. at the end. Yeah. And um, so they did that and so the – and that's how they got the chunks – 
that look like chunks of skin and viscera to sort of fall in the, in the sink because they had these things on and the pieces of jello were going – red jello uh-huh. were going plunk, plunk, plunk. And Stephen's pulling away and he's having a great old time. And they got it all in one take oh, wow. because they could only get it in one take. Uh-huh. And I just I, – the whole time I just sat there thing. And the AD was next to me and he, he was kind of my buddy and he just said, that was the smartest thing ever <laughs> because – they, you know, they can't blame you if something goes wrong. So, um, yeah. So that's what we did. And what they did was when they cut the movie together, they called me about three months later and said, um, there's too big of a jump in the continuity. It goes from you going like picking at a scab to your face falling off. Yeah. So, and by that point I was in a play that I had written where I had basically, my hair was about an inch short and in the movie I had very long hair. So, I called them and said, I'm free those days. Yeah, whatever. Uh, I can do whatever you need me to do. My hair is very short. And they said, no problem. We'll get the dummy. We saved the dummy. The $10,000 wig. $10, wig on the dummy. So they stuck it on my head and I was three hours sitting in a makeup chair and they had prosthetics. I have to always remember this very carefully. Uh, they had prosthetics all over the right side of my face and filled with blood bags and they had to be careful again because of the shirt situation because they could have had to make sure that none of the blood that was in the blood packets leaked down and got on my white shirts while we kept shooting this over and over and over again because they could repair the packets and redo it, but they uh, couldn't redo the shirts. Wow. All of this being held up by shirt by shirts. limitations. Yeah, That's it, well, crazy. It's, yeah, it was crazy. It was like, why don't you have like 50 of them? Yeah. That would make it easier. It was a it was a low budget movie, I think. So, <laughs> so I got out of the chair finally, and they fixed my hair, and I had all the makeup on, and the blood bags, and the prosthetics, and I got downstairs, and Frank Marshall was overseeing that sequence, and I sat down, and I there was the mirror, and I stood in the mirror, and he said, "Oh, this is going to be fabulous. It's going to match perfectly once we you know cut to the next scene," and the um, the person who was the script supervisor said, "They're on the wrong side," and Frank went, "What?" And she said, yeah, remember, it's a – she said, well, you apparently were using to do the prosthetic, oh, no. the shot in the mirror. Oh. So it was the other and, – and everybody went, oh, and I went, I guess I'm going back upstairs to makeup, <laughs> right? And they're like, yeah, that's another three hours. He said, oh, we'll do some inserts or something while you're upstairs. Oh, so I went back and they put it all on the other side. And the whole time they had people standing there with you know cotton balls and swabs and – you know, and towels so that the blood wouldn't drip every time they had to rip a bag off. Yeah. So then I, about three hours later, I went back and um, that that was actually really fun because uh, Frank and I had gotten to be really good friends on on Raiders. And um, and so Frank was like, this is a breeze. You'll do it. He said, he said, you'll you'll have a lot of fun. So I got to do almost the same thing Stephen did. I just got to sort of rip pieces of flesh off as opposed to just pulling out chunks and having the eyes move and all of that. I got to tear really carefully so that they could match it to what came next. Ugh. So it was it was a lot of fun and everybody came that day because they all wanted to see the, – they wanted to watch the retakes to make sure it was right. So, wow. Yeah. Let's hear about some of the other people involved. Um, <clears throat> Craig T. Nelson. Craig. Um, Craig was really funny. Yeah. He was – He's tall. He's a really tall guy. He's turned into a bit of a firecracker these days. He has <laughs> turned into a bit of firecracker. He was not like that at really? all. Oh, yeah, no, not on the set at all. No, mm-hmm. he was just – he was funny and charming and very witty and always – because he started as a comedy writer, I believe. I didn't know that. I think so. I think he was – I may have this wrong. I may have the exact thing wrong. I think he was – worked for the Carol Burnett show or something. Oh my I God. think he was a comedy writer. Wow. Yeah. And Joe Beth Williams uh, – 
goddess. I worshipped her. She was she's amazing in this film. Amazing, and I have to say, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass here. You did a fantastic job in this film. I'm curious as to why you didn't do. I know you do a lot of writing and teaching, but. Um, what, did, was acting just not for your taste or something? Because you've got the I, chops. Yeah, thank you. It was – I have to say I'll take that smoke. Thank you. <laughs> um, I The thing that I'm most proud of in that movie was that I had no idea what the special effects work were going to look like. When they pop that light on and I go, wow, when I see that my face is back together. Yeah. I had no idea what yeah. it was going to all look like. And there's no together. precedent for this in the movies no. really at this no, point. No, nobody yeah. knew that. And that one was so much fun because I, I, I got it on the first take. Mm. What happened was that I, you know, I went up for other things. I don't really have the temperament of an actor, I, whatever that means. It's stressful. It's, it's really stressful. Stressful over something that shouldn't in the big scheme of things, be, be that stressful. That stressful. And, that, and so you're also left with a little guilt for being stressed about Exactly. I mean, and there's all those famous famous people say, Spencer Tracy saying, know your lines and don't run into the furniture. And I mean, when I, the first day of, and this is, I'm in awe of actors. I am a writer now mostly. And uh, my favorite thing in the world is when I hear actors do my stuff, they always bring this whole other, you know, I always say when you, as soon as you get the actors, it's another 50% of what you've done uh-huh. adding to the, adding to the story. And, but when I – the first day the, on, the, on set for Poltergeist, I just kept saying to myself, they made Benji the dog look like he was acting. So <laughs> this will – I can do this. The thing I want to say about Jo Beth Williams in addition to being how amazing she is, she was one of those actors – I don't know if she's still that way or not – that she had such – she had to carry that movie basically. She had all the hard stuff to do. She had effects to do. She had to be the loving mother. She had to be funny and she basically had to spend the last part of the movie screaming in a bathtub, a ghost dragging her around a room. Um, she was very, very, very focused and for some of the time, it was one of those performances which we all hear about where it was basically the AD would go, kind of leave Joe Beth alone. It takes her a lot of time to pre- prepare. And when you'd see the results, you'd, you'd understand why. I mean, she's just – that scene where she says, I felt her go through me. I mean, I got to see that. Mm-hmm. I, I was there when she yeah. shot that. And I mean, some of the people were in tears. She was so wonderful. So yeah. – and, you know, then there's the tragedies of two, uh, yeah, two of the, the people. The supposed curse. Yeah. Now, this, did you work much with Heather O'Rourke? Because she's mostly in the television. She's in the point. television at, at the point when I'm there. I only really got to meet her when she came to the uh, soundstage one day. I think she came to visit a couple times and then she came one day to record the mommy, mommy, no, stay away. And she, of course, was this perfect little professional actress doing these. She could just do these things and they were terrific. And uh, the sound guy was, you know, in a little corner of the room and she's shouting and screaming. And a couple of – it was interesting. um, A couple of people who were – I'll just say in the movie and some of the crew people, it was hard for them to watch this little five-year-old sure. having to scream and yell and say, he's getting me, he's getting me. And it, it was a little damaging yeah. for some people. And, and um, that was – that's my only – when I crossed paths with her. I'm sure most people know this, but she passed away a few years later from an intestinal rupture, yes. right? And then Dominique Dunn. Dominique Dunn. Who plays the oldest daughter? Who I had a, lots of work. I yeah. worked with her a lot. And she yeah. was murdered by her boyfriend in the driveway 
of her, of either her house or her parents' yeah. house. Yeah. Um, so, the, the last person I want to ask you about, you don't really have any scenes with her, but I am so fascinated by Zelda Rubenstein. We actually, because I came to the set a lot and visited, and it was because it, there's only. Uh, let me just say this. Zelda, we just somehow got to be friends. It turned out she was very good friends with another friend of mine and we hung out a lot. And um, she was a very tough woman. Really? She didn't suffer fools gladly. This is all I want to be true. Yes. Yeah. And um, and the other thing that she did was uh, for any of you that are listening out there that are, aren't old enough to know, uh, in the 1980s when the AIDS epidemic was really at the high point and people were dying in the hundreds every week, um, Zelda became the face of a local AIDS organization and she they created a character for her called Mother. And and she her face during the 1980s because of her fame from Poltergeist and I think she's in the second one too, right? She's in one of the other ones. Um, she became this character known as Mother and her picture was plastered all over Los Angeles. And um, But she was tough. Oh, yeah. She was tough. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to wrap this up and do something I've never done before because I haven't even been able to touch on Raiders of the Lost Ark with you, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. So we're going to bring you back for the next episode and just talk Raiders. So this is the Poltergeist episode, and the next episode after this will be the Raiders of the Lost Ark episode with Martin Casella. Martin, thank you so much for this, and we'll talk to you next episode. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Matt. Many thanks to Martin Casella, who was such a great guest that he will be back next episode to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, and also to Matt Scott for setting this whole interview up. And now I would like to take just a second to talk about my grandmother, Eddie, who was a guest on this show for the Doug Benson Captain EO episode, and she talked about her time living in Hollywood in the early part of the 20th century around the area of Schwab's drugstore and the Garden of Allah apartments where all the starlets and young hunks of Hollywood were hanging out. In fact, she even had a little bit of an innocent soda date with the Joker from the 60s Batman show, Cesar Romero. And she told me all about that. And uh, unfortunately, she passed away last month. And I thought that I would play a clip from her episode and then tell you a funny thing about it that she told me afterwards that isn't on the interview and also as a way to uh, celebrate her. She was, I can't stress this enough, just the most amazing, wonderful woman. Um, she was 97 when she passed away and even to the end was doling out advice for the entire family, even literally on her deathbed, saying things like, don't bury your face too much in your phones. Although I will tell you, she was a Facebook fiend and uh, was all over that thing. She taught computer classes in her 90s. And I know for a fact that whatever this podcast is, she was very excited to hear the wonderful feedback that everybody sent in for her. It's Her segment was probably one of the most popular things that's ever been on this show. And I love that the show is what it is about actors playing parts in films and of course, along comes my grandma Eddie and steals the spotlight. She was, um, you know, she was really special. So, have a listen. She she would have liked it. I was there, circa nineteen forty-two. So I'm here with my wonderful grandmother, 
Eleanor Gorley, but you go by Eddie, right? That's right. And what's the quick story on that? You just... Oh, okay. That happened... I was living with my grandparents when I was born. My dad was at war, and so my grandfather named me Eddie May. And uh, But as I got older then, I dropped the May. And it was just Eddie. <laughs> when I got in school, they called me Eleanor. But then when I met Jim... And we married. He picked up the Eddie from my family. And uh, so I've been Eddie. So when you say your father was at war, that was World War One, And I don't want to reveal your age because a gentleman never asks and a lady never tells. But it's it's up to you. (laughs) It's pretty impressive. Well, for you, Matt, (laughs) my wonderful grandson, I'll tell you. Uh, 96. 96. Going on 97. And you would never know it. I have to tell you a little bit about my grandma because... She's an amazing inspiration to our entire family. It wasn't long ago. You're active on Facebook. You taught yes. a computer class not too long ago. Mm-hmm. You're incredible. Thank you very much. <laughs> and every time we show up, you've got the most amazing batch of cookies ready to go. <laughs> Your cookies are second to none. Well, I yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, that I I know that you expect them. Every one of every one of the grand boys do. And also the sons, when they come, they they expect them. So I got out of the shower just about an hour before you were supposed to arrive and realized I didn't have any chocolate chip cookies. So I quick... This is where my love of cookies yeah, comes from. Yes. You, and I, yeah, I mean, I prefer to eat cookies for every meal if I can. And I think I have you to blame for that. <laughs> probably, probably. So I was able to greet you and Amanda at the door with a cookie in each hand uh-huh. for you. So I'm very excited to talk about just a little bit about the history because when you and Grandpa moved from Ohio to Los Angeles, you lived in many locations throughout Southern California. But for a while, you lived very near the Garden of Allah Apartments, which has its own set of fascinating and sordid stories about old-time Hollywood. But also, you went to Schwab's Drugstore. And and am I wrong about this? You had a, a shake or a malt with Cesar Romero who played oh, the Joker on the Batman? Crush. Oh, I Did had you? such a crush on him. <laughs> I went there every day. Uh, your granddad went to work for Douglas, and he worked in the afternoon. And so he probably left for work around 2, I would say, for the uh, the third shift and, uh-huh. and uh, or second shift maybe. I don't know what it was, but it was he worked about 3 to 12. And so as soon as he would leave, I would go up to Schwab's drugstore, and I was drinking Cokes. And I'd just drink one Coke right after another. Really? Because this is where I get in. that from, too. Yeah, and Cesar Romero came in there just, if I remember, just about every day. Really? And I would just sit there and drink the Cokes and just watch him. <laughs> but I never was discovered. Uh, and I understand there were quite a few movie stars that were discovered there. Was so. that kind of a hope of yours, or were you interested no, in that? No, no, I wasn't. No, I didn't. I just I just fell in love with Cesar Romero. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Now, did you ever have any kind of uh, discussion with him or anything? Well, just uh, just very, uh, just nodding, just just passing a few words, that's uh, all. Uh, yeah, that's nothing sweet. real. Well... No, he was he was so handsome. <laughs> and it's all very innocent anyway, because my understanding is he in the end, he, he didn't exactly go for the lady types. Did you know that? Uh, that was a shock to me uh, when uh, uh, Jimmy, our son, uh, 
sat at a table with him up at the Gene Autry Museum, I think it was. They were at a big dinner there. I didn't know this. Yeah. My father? Well, he yes, there, he, he, there was a big dinner there, uh-huh. and uh, they were seated at this big round table. And um, there was a lady with him that always was by his side. Uh-huh. And so, but then he proceeded to tell me, when I got so excited, you know, about it, I, Jimmy proceeded to tell me that um, really... Um, that he was um, not interested in women. Right. I so, think um, Marlene Dietrich has a famous quote about it. Have you ever heard this? Let me see if I can find it. She once said, uh, Cesar Romero was the undisputed queen of homosexuals. I don't think there was a gay an actor in Hollywood who hadn't been there. But I was so naive. I don't think I really knew that there yeah, were, were people like that. Because right. you know, I they, was only 21. And it wouldn't have been obvious at the time anyway. No, no. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known what they were talking about. <laughs> and his roles were so dashing or yeah. flamboyant in their own right because he played the Joker. And you would expect him to be larger than life, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you and Grandpa, you lived very close to the Garden of all uh, apartment building, right? Um, When I uh, came to California, uh, Grandpa came out uh, ahead of me to get a job. And so he came in August, and I arrived in October. Uh, I rode the Greyhound bus out from Canton, Ohio. How many days did that take? Uh, Quite a few. Jeez. And I wasn't really dressed for it. Uh, (laughs) I didn't... I was going to California, so I didn't need heavy clothes. And so it happened that I sat beside a um, um, officer in the Navy, and he had a peacoat. So at night, he would loan me his peacoat. He would cover me with his peacoat, and he bought my meals, and I thought, boy, this is really neat. But he got a surprise when we got off of the bus, and Jim was there, (laughs) grabbed me. So it was kind of a disappointment because I think he had um, some... Uh, he, he had, had something else in mind. It. Well, it sounds like Grandma, and, and uh, having seen pictures of you as a young woman, you were a foxy lady, and you were I could see where you were charming the socks <laughs> off these gentlemen, even now. <laughs> you uh, mean after lunch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> I was friendly. <laughs> Our waiter really took a fancy to you, right? And uh, Yeah, he did, and he wasn't too bad looking. And you said you were available, huh? Yes, I did. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, oh. <laughs> well, let me just put the call out right now. If there are any uh, young men, and I'm saying, you know, young in there. What, what do you like, a good man in his 80s? What do you like? Well, 75. 75? Yeah, might do. For all my 75-year-old podcast listeners out there, you know, just just contact me and we'll uh, we'll have a little matchmaking service. Oh, boy. <laughs> he must like cookies. That's right. <laughs> well, I'll make them. Okay. Done. Okay. <laughs> I was there circa 1942. Well, I was going to edit that into a short digestible clip, but how do you edit your grandma? She wouldn't be edited in life and won't be edited in death. Um, I couldn't resist. So there is a second half of that interview, but what you heard there was uncut. Now, when we finished recording that, I remember on the day she, she says, Oh Matt, I have a scandalous story, but I couldn't tell it on that. She said air, I think, uh, apparently my grandfather knew that she had this little soda fountain date with Cesar Romero and he was working, I believe in Ohio that Christmas and so because he was away, 
he sent her a gift to put under the tree and not to open until Christmas. And it was just like a little jewelry box. And my grandma was so excited the way she tells it. <laughs> and uh, she opened it up on Christmas and it was a cocktail weenie with a ribbon tied around it that said from Cesar Romero. <laughs> and the best part about that is she couldn't tell that story because it was so scandalous. But that was my grandma. I think one of the last things she said to me was actually to Amanda, my fiance, and she said, oh, that's right. By the way, I got engaged. This isn't the time for that, no matter how excited I am about it. She said, do you like his beard? Very passive aggressively. <laughs> uh, I will miss you, Grandma. Thank you for being my grandma. Now, on a lighter note, I am very excited to be back doing I Was There Too, and very excited for these first three episodes to be a Spielberg block of his early 80s classics. You can find out more about this show on Twitter, at I Was There Too, or at Matt Gorley, or on Instagram, at Matt Gorley, or on Letterboxd, at Matt Gorley, where now, not only do I have a list that you can look at of the films that are coming up for this podcast, but I've also done a list in order of the uh, little theme song tags that are references from great film scores. So if it's nagging at you, what is that from? I know I recognize it. Go to letterbox.com, go to my profile, Matt Gorley, and look at the list. I was there, two theme songs, and check it out. If you know of a guest that would be perfect for this show and can connect me to them, email me at iwasthere2pod at gmail.com. How do I pick my guests? I don't know. It certainly isn't a science. It's somewhere between I go find them, uh, my new wonderful booker Greta finds them, or a guest suggests them. Well, Matt, how do we know what films you're going to like? You don't. Because some people have sent in some wonderful guests. But guess what? Maybe I haven't seen the movie. Or maybe I didn't like the movie. I don't know. Or maybe I don't even know who they are. There's no science. I throw a dart at a wall, but the wall is a blockbuster video, and it wasn't there. So, so i got to rely on other methods. All right. It's been a while. Leave a review on iTunes if you get a chance. Five stars or go to Mars, as the old podcast review saying goes. Thanks for listening, and uh, it's good to be back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.